Hey, it's Guy here. So what does it take for 90 people in an orchestra to play the exact same chord so specifically and so accurately all at the same time? Well, that beautiful synthesis of music comes together because of trust, trust in the conductor. And on this episode, we explore ideas around trust, trust in the people we love, in our leaders and institutions, and especially in ourselves. It's called Trust and Consequences, and it originally aired in May of 2015. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, trust and consequences. And trust comes in handy, especially if you're this guy. I'm Charles Hayeswood, and I'm a conductor. Charles conducts orchestras all around the world. And of course, we live in an age where, in the rock and roll world, pop world, everything pretty much is recorded now to a click track. Which is like a digital metronome. It makes it really easy to synchronize instruments. So it's a kind of completely fail-safe. No one will ever play in the wrong place. Everything will always sync up. But you see, the orchestra doesn't have a click track. And that's a tough thing because as a conductor, you play an instrument which is called the orchestra, upwards of 100 people. You know, you can't actually touch or blow or scrape or do anything to this instrument called the orchestra. All you can do is move air around and trust that your gesture will communicate what is useful to the orchestra. Like, so for instance, there might be a time when the orchestra needs to hit a chord, but like that, which is a terrifying start to a symphony. <laughs> God, you have to trust that's going to be there and it's going to happen. You know, out of thin air, you need to get... Right. And you would have thought... If you were a young conductor and you had that much experience, that you would hit the downbeat with your stick and at that exact moment you'd go, bah! But, you know, of course, it takes time for 90 people to kind of amass and play specifically and accurately together. So that bah will always come sometime after your stick has clicked that downbeat. And somehow it all gels, it's incredibly tight, it's fiery, it's focused, it's poised. It can move forward, it can pull back, it can stop, it can start. And no one said a word. And there certainly ain't no machine going. Dip, 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 and all of that works because of trust. Here's Charles on the TED stage. Now, in the old days, conducting music making was less about trust and more, frankly, about coercion. Up to around about the Second World War, conductors were invariably dictators these tyrannical figures who would rehearse not just the orchestra as a whole, but individuals within it, within an inch of their lives. Well, I'm happy to say now that the world's moved on, music's moved on with it, we now have a more democratic view and way of making music, a two-way street. I, as the conductor, have to come to the rehearsal with a cast-iron sense of the outer architecture of that music. 
within which there is then immense personal freedom for the members of the orchestra to shine. There has to be between me and the orchestra an unshakable bond of trust, born out of mutual respect, through which we can spin a musical narrative that we all believe in. It's almost like a small miracle that an orchestra works. It is a small miracle. In fact, sorry, I think it's an enormous miracle. <laughs> um, and of course, I'm effectively receiving all their information, all the multiple pieces of texture and color and, and, and inference and idea from each and every member of that orchestra individually. And I'm effectively passing it up, balancing it, mixing it, and passing it out to the audience. You know, it's not about power, it's not about who's in charge. It's about uh, me throwing out a gesture and trusting myself and therefore trusting that they will read that gesture and respond to it. That kind of trust is what allows us to make assumptions that things will go right. So, of course, trust is actually the most fundamental gel in every single human relationship. And without trust, no relationship can really flourish. Trust means the pilot will get you home safely, or the thing you order will arrive. That the government won't steal and your partner won't cheat. Trust is the way a beautiful piece of music comes together. And without it, everything breaks down. Here's Charles Hazelwood once again from the TED stage. And I remember at the beginning of my career, again and again, these dismal outings with orchestras. I would be going completely insane on the podium, trying to engender a small-scale crescendo, really, just a little upsurge in volume. Bugger me, they wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> Think about it. When you're in a position of not trusting, what do you do? You overcompensate. And in my game, that means you over-gesticulate. You end up like some kind of rabid windmill. And the bigger your gesture gets, the more ill-defined, blurry, and frankly useless it is to the orchestra. You become a figure of fun. There's no trust anymore, only ridicule. And how futile seemed the words, the words of advice to me from the great British veteran conductor Sir Colin Davis, who said, conducting Charles is like holding a small bird in your hand. If you hold it too tightly, you crush it. If you hold it too loosely, it flies away. I have to say, in those days, I couldn't really even find the bird. So it's interesting because you know we think of a conductor as like this person in power, in a position of power. But but I guess you would like walk into rehearsal rooms early in your career, and and you would kind of like struggle to earn the trust of of those musicians. Absolutely, because as I say, in these early years, I wasn't I wasn't just I wasn't um, demonstrating a clarity because I was so fearful that my ideas weren't valuable, that my ideas didn't really hold water, and the fact is that. It's all well and good having this trust equation with other people, but it didn't work at all until you'd learnt first to trust yourself. And I learnt very early on that, that there wasn't any way they were going to trust me until I'd actually learnt to walk onto that podium with a real sense of value, that I was going to add value in the room within which every single member of that orchestra could bring their particular talents to the table. So Charles, we're listening, as you know, to a piece of music by Franz Josef Haydn. And there's actually a, a story about trust uh, that you've talked about be, behind this piece. Yeah, it's a beautiful example, actually, of when trust breaks down. Um, essentially, Haydn spent most of his career um, in the permanent employment of the prince called Esterhazy. Now, this prince particularly liked spending time in the country palace. And where he went, 
all his court went, his retinue, and of course the orchestra and Haydn as its chief. However, one day in the 1770s, this prince decided, for whatever reason, that he didn't want the orchestral musicians' families living in the court anymore. You can imagine the musicians were desolate, but the prince on this occasion was implacable and unbending. So Haydn decided the only way to prick his conscience and to melt his heart was to write a piece of music for him. So he wrote a symphony called the Farewell Symphony. And in the last section of it, it's written into the score that bit by bit the musicians finish their part, blow out their candle and walk out. So the music literally slowly withers and dies. And it's a beautiful metaphor, really, isn't it? That where there is no trust, the music withers away. But where there is trust, there is music and it can continue forever. And happily, this piece of music did indeed so affect the prince that he immediately reversed the decision. Wow. You know, I wonder, um, as a conductor, you know exactly how you want something to sound, right? I mean, and it must be tempting to want to be a dictator sometimes, <laughs> like Prince Esterhazy. Gosh, of course you could, as a conductor, micromanage. You could uh, drill each and every member of the orchestra into every tiny nuance, just controlling, directing, making the decisions for them. But if you did that, you might get something that was very precise, very accurate, but it wouldn't have any life because it wouldn't actually be truthful for any of those musicians. You know, I mean, the most brilliant manager is the manager who somehow manages to unlock ideas in others rather than impose his or her own. And if I can get the equation right as a conductor, it's the most extraordinary, magical, spiritual, life-affirming experience you could possibly have. That's Charles Hazelwood. He also conducts something called the Para Orchestra. It's the world's first professional ensemble for disabled musicians. You can learn more about it at paraorchestra.com. So on the show today, we're talking about trust. Trust is absolutely essential for human survival. This is Simon Sinek. Until we feel that we can rely completely on the person to the left of us or the person to the right of us, we can't really achieve anything great. Simon's consulted everyone from CEOs of large companies to congressmen all about how they can cultivate trust, which can be tricky because sometimes trust works in illogical ways. For example... It's just this weird thing that we trust people like us, even if they're not qualified. So let's say you're on vacation in Paris standing in the Paris metro and some people, you know, next to you turn around and say, hey, where are you guys from? You're from Los Angeles? Oh my God, we're from New York. And you're like Bond and you're like other Americans. And then they say to you, hey, you've got to try this restaurant. It's so good. And you'll turn to your family and you say, hey, we're going to go to this restaurant because these strangers who aren't even from Paris told us we should go there. <laughs> it's just so funny to me. We feel that someone like us has our interests in mind because they're going through the same experience. Yeah. And that's where the trust comes from. Whereas if a Frenchman turned to you and randomly said, welcome to our country, you should try this restaurant, you'd be like, you're a weirdo. Yeah. What are you telling us this for? We're not going there. 
And he's far more likely to know something yeah, exactly. off the beaten path. He would know. And he's just being friendly, saying, actually, you don't want to go there. You want to go there. Exactly. But we're thinking, maybe he works for that other restaurant. Yeah. But he's just a friendly foodie. Just a friendly foodie. Now, this might sound counterintuitive, right? And, and you might end up in a really horrible restaurant. But what Simon is getting at is that when we're surrounded by people who are like us in some way... We trust them. Here's the opening from his TED Talk. Trust is a feeling, a distinctly human experience. Simply doing everything that you promise you're going to do does not mean people will trust you. It just means you're reliable. And we all have friends who are total screw-ups, and yet we still trust them. Trust comes from a sense of common values and beliefs. And the reason trust is important is because when we are surrounded with people who believe what we believe, We're more confident to take risks. We're more confident to experiment, which requires failure, by the way. We're more confident to go off and explore, knowing that there is someone from within our community, someone who believes what we believe, someone we trust and who trusts us, will watch our back, help us when we fall over, and watch our stuff and look after our children while we're gone. Our very survival depends on our ability to surround ourselves with people who believe what we believe. But what happens when we don't feel like we trust those around us? More from Simon Sinek and his ideas about trust in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Starbucks. For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is, from a flat white to an iced Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. Thanks also to Trader Joe's, where a trip through the grocery store is like a journey through fascinating food finds, astonishing culinary inventions, fresh approaches to classic dishes, and new ways to prepare dinner. At Trader Joe's, you'll find grocery basics and exciting new foods and beverages that tempt your palate without challenging your wallet. Trader Joe's doesn't carry soup to nuts. They do carry a lot of soup, and they do carry a lot of nuts, though. More at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And today on the show, trust and consequences. We were just hearing from Simon Sinek. He writes and speaks about leadership and trust. And one of the things he's noticed is that at the best companies, when there's no trust, the companies are usually in trouble. So, for example, several months ago... I was boarding an airplane and I was witness to a scene of a passenger who attempted to board the aircraft before their group number was called. And the gate agent 
sort of berated him. You know, step aside, sir. I haven't called your group. Wait until I call your group. And I spoke up. I said, why can't you talk just like we're human beings? And she looked me in the eye and said, sir, if I don't follow the rules, I could get in trouble or lose my job. All she revealed to me is that she does not feel safe in her own job. All that she revealed to me is that her own leaders don't trust her. What's the connection between feeling safe and trust? They're inextricably linked. The sense of feeling safe comes first. So when we feel safe, trust will emerge. And and this is what the foundations of leadership really are. The reason we call someone leader is because they choose to go first. They choose to extend trust um, first, even before maybe any signs have been offered that they should. It's the willingness to express empathy before anyone else. And, and presumably that feeling changes behavior. Absolutely. And when we assess that someone would do that, and we see that they have that integrity and they would willingly sacrifice their interests for our lives, we cannot help ourselves. The natural human response is trust. Bob Chapman, who runs a large manufacturing company in the Midwest called Barry Waymiller, in 2008, was hit very hard by the recession, and they lost 30% of their orders overnight. Now, in a large manufacturing company, this is a, this is a big deal, and they could no longer afford their, la their labor pool. They needed to save $10 million. So, like so many companies today, the board got together and discussed layoffs. And Bob refused. And so they came up with a furlough program. Every employee from secretary to CEO was required to take four weeks of unpaid vacation. They could take it any time they wanted, and they did not have to take it consecutively. But it was how Bob announced the program that mattered so much. He said, it's better that we should all suffer a little than any of us should have to suffer a lot. And morale went up. They saved $20 million. And most importantly, as would be expected, when the people feel safe and protected by the leadership in the organization, the natural reaction is to trust and cooperate. And quite spontaneously, nobody expected, people started trading with each other. Those who could afford it more would trade with those who could afford it less. People would take five weeks so that somebody else only had to take three. And this is the point, which is, as human beings, if those in especially leadership position express empathy for our well-being, we reward them with our trust and our loyalty and our love to see that their vision and the company is advanced. I mean, why do you think it, it's such a powerful emotion or feeling? Because, I mean, when, when it's betrayed, it can be devastating. These things are hard to put into words because they're hard to measure, but they're alive and well. I wish we could just say, you know, how does an engine work? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not mechanical. And I think that's what makes it so elusive is there's no formula. Like, what are the seven steps to forming trust? Right. I don't have them. I mean, I can tell you some really important things that you should do. But if you follow the list, you still won't develop trust with someone. That's the problem. We're so obsessed these days with giving me a list and let me check off the boxes and sort of don't I feel good on to the next. And we forget that these very human things require us to sacrifice. And it can come in any form, you know, time or energy. But I think the foundation of trust really is the willingness to sacrifice for another. I heard a story of some Marines who were out in theater 
And as is the Marine custom, the officer ate last, and he let his men eat first. And when they were done, there was no food left for him. And when they went back out in the field, his men brought him some of their food so that he may eat. Because that's what happens. We call them leaders because they go first. We call them leaders because they take the risk before anybody else does. And when we ask them, why would you do that? Why would you give your blood and sweat and tears for that person? They all say the same thing. Because they would have done it for me. And isn't that the organization we would all like to work in? Thank you very much. That's Simon Sinek. He's the author of the book Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last. Our show today is about trust, its invisible power, and what happens when it's lost. It was painful. It still is uh, very painful. This is George Papandreou. And back in 2011, he was ousted as prime minister of Greece. But less than two years before that, a completely different story. There's massive jubilation here in Athens. This really is a resounding victory for George Papandreou. It must have been amazing to feel as if your countrymen had placed their trust in you to, you know, steer the ship of state. And yet just a few short years later, that trust collapsed, right? That's right. And and it's very easy, and this is part of representative democracy, to say, oh, you know, that politician is to blame or the other one is to blame, when we actually need to look deeper into how our institutions are working. So the story of Papandreou's political unraveling actually began almost immediately after his election as prime minister. It wouldn't just cost him his job, but the trust of the Greek people, who eventually came to distrust their entire democracy in the very country that invented it. And it all goes back to a decision George Papandreou made at the height of Europe's economic crisis. It's a story he told on the TED stage. Sunday evening, Brussels, April 2010, I'm sitting with my counterparts in the European Union. I had just been elected prime minister, but I had the unhappy privilege of revealing a truth that our deficit was not 6%, as had been officially reported by the previous government, but actually 15.6%. The markets mistrusted us. Our borrowing costs were skyrocketing, and we were facing possible default. So I went to Brussels on a mission to make the case for a united European response. Picture yourselves around the table in Brussels. Negotiations are difficult, the tensions are high, progress is slow, and then 10 minutes to two, a prime minister shouts out, we have to finish in 10 minutes because the markets are opening up in Japan and there will be havoc in the global economy. What followed were the most difficult decisions in my life. Painful to me, painful to my countrymen, imposing cuts, austerity, often on those not to blame for the crisis. With these sacrifices, Greece did avoid bankruptcy and the Eurozone avoided a collapse. But then, in 2011, 
After months of negotiating the details of that deal with European leaders to avoid bankruptcy, George Papandreou made a surprising decision. After a few days of relative calm, Europe has been plunged back into political and economic uncertainty. Papandreou called for a referendum on the deal, a vote in Greece for the people to decide whether they would accept the terms of the bailout. A referendum that he could not only lose, but that could scuttle the deal and take the European currency and perhaps the world economy down with it. It seems he's prepared to take the massive political gamble of trusting his own people. Papandreou's opponent said calling for a referendum was political, an attempt to hold on to power. But he says he was trying to do something that had not been done up until that point in the crisis, to trust the public. In Brussels, when we tried desperately again and again to find common solutions, I realized that not one, not one of us had ever dealt with a similar crisis. But worse, instead of reaching out to the common or the collective wisdom in our societies, to find more creative solutions. We reverted to political posturing. And then we were surprised when every ad hoc new measure didn't bring an end to the crisis. And of course, that made it very easy to look for a whipping boy for our collective European failure. And of course, that was Greece. Those profligate, idle, ouzo-swilling, zorba-dancing Greeks, they are the problem. Punish them. Well, a convenient but unfounded stereotype that sometimes hurt even more than austerity itself. That's why I called for a referendum to have the Greek people own and decide on the terms of the rescue package. My European counterparts, some of them at least, said, you can't do this, there will be havoc in the markets. Again, I said before we restore confidence in the markets, we need to restore confidence and trust amongst our people. But most of Papandreou's counterparts in Europe were too afraid to place that decision in the hands of the Greek public. Many of the leaders were again fearful that the markets would wreak havoc on, on, on the European Union and the, and the Euro. Uh, that undermined me in, in Greece. So I ended up uh, forming a coalition to create a wider consensus, as, as wide as possible, with uh, opposition parties. And um, at least then, the program would have continued to go through. So under intense political pressure, Papandreou canceled that planned referendum. And after he built that political coalition to create a wider consensus, his opponents pushed him out. Even though these decisions were very painful, uh, and I wish I hadn't had to have taken them, I did so for the better, for the public good, because the alternative would have been much worse. How do you think you could ever regain the trust of the people in Greece? Basically through, through the truth, simply t- telling what, what happened. But uh, I would say also, uh, I still feel that because of this crisis, uh, it's been very easy for people to either look towards saviors or blame some demons uh, out somewhere out there. Uh, both of those reactions are, are very passive. Uh, and what I would like to see, and much more participatory democracy, where people take initiatives, are innovative, and Greece has great potential in that. The ancient Greeks, with all their shortcomings, believed in the wisdom of the crowd at their best moments. Democracy could not work without the citizens 
deliberating, debating, taking on public responsibilities for public affairs. And those who shun politics, well, they were idiots. You see, in ancient Greece, in ancient Athens, that term comes from the root idio, oneself. Person who is self-centered, secluded, excluded, someone who doesn't participate or even examine public affairs. The revival of democratic politics will come from you, and I mean all of you. Everyone who stands up to the unchecked power, whether it's authoritarian leaders, plutocrats hiding their assets in tax havens, or powerful lobbies protecting the powerful few, it is in their interest. That all of us are idiots. Let's not be. Thank you. If、um, if someone were to ask you, you know, why should I trust in democracy? Like, you know, when democracy isn't giving me a voice or or a place or an opportunity, what would you say? Well, the answer is a simple one. Tell me what I should trust in if I don't trust in democracy. If we don't trust in our own capacity, then who will we trust in? Will we trust the technocrats, or will we trust the computers?、Uh, will we trust a dictator, or will we trust a fundamentalist religion?、Uh, or will we, in the end, trust ourselves? It's the one thing that guarantees our own rights can be protected, and、um, we can work for a much better life. Former Greek Prime Minister George Papandreou he recently announced he was going to make a political comeback. By the way, since his resignation in 2011, there have been four Greek prime ministers, and the country is still struggling to repay debts from the European bailout. If someone were to ask you for three words to sum up your reputation, <laughs> what would you say? I didn't see that question coming. <laughs> this is Rachel Botsman, and this is the question that she asked the audience when she gave her TED talk.、Um, is this a serious question? Yeah, yeah.、Um, Rachel writes about how our reputations are a kind of currency. I think they would say loyal, committed, and passionate. Those are great words. That's、Thank、your you. reputation. That I well. That's what I'd like people to think. Yes, and what people think of you drives what Rachel and others call the trust economy. People call it the sharing economy. They call it the collaborative economy, collaborative consumption, whatever you call it. Trust is the social glue. I mean, think about it. We exchange money without、so、banks. You see things like lending club. Funding circle, transferwise. We accept rides from strangers. Whether it's Lyft, Sidecar, Uber, and ridesharing. We stay in other people's homes, people we've never met. From couch surfing to Airbnb, all the way to the high end of one fine stay, which is I think properties now over a million dollars. And all of those services run on trust. Here's how Rachel described it in her TED talk. Now, what's happening here? Is people realizing the power of technology to unlock the idling capacity and value of all kinds of assets, from skills to spaces to material possessions, in ways on a scale never possible before? It's an economy and culture called collaborative consumption, and through it. People are becoming micro entrepreneurs. They're empowered to make money and save money from their existing assets. 
With every trade we make, comment we leave, person we flag, badge we earn, we leave a reputation trail of how well we can and can't be trusted. And it's not just the breadth, but the volume of reputation data out there is staggering. Just consider this. Five million nights have been booked on Airbnb in the past six months alone. 30 million rides have been shared on carpooling.com. This year, $2 billion worth of loans will go through peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms. This adds up to millions of pieces of reputation data on how well we behave or misbehave. Those numbers are way higher today. Rachel actually gave this talk a few years ago, and she thinks part of the reason these services are growing so fast is because there's been a kind of evolution in the way we trust, especially online. We trust people because through digital technologies, we think we know them. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to trust this website to put in my name. I'm not going to use a pseudonym. Right. I'm going to trust this website with payment information. I'm now going to trust this platform and put in this highly personal information. And then I'm going to often meet that person offline, in the real world. So I genuinely believe that the way we are forming trust and the way we're trusting people is becoming compressed and accelerated. Coming up in a moment, how the trust economy isn't just changing the way we do business, it's actually making us behave better. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com hour. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks also to Zoom Video Communications. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Meet happy anytime, anywhere with Zoom, connecting team members across the globe. Imagine seeing 25 people on the screen at once in digital video. Share anything, a file, a video, a photo, via desktop, laptop, tablet, or mobile. Visit zoom.us to set up your free account today and meet happy with Zoom Video Communications. Zoom.us. NPR's Code Switch tackles race and identity in America with humanity and humor. You'll laugh, you'll learn, you'll get uncomfortable. It's worth it. Find Code Switch on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, trust and consequences. And a few minutes ago, we were hearing from Rachel Botsman. She studies a part of the economy based entirely on trusting complete strangers. Meet 46-year-old Chris Mock, who has, I bet, the best job title here of Super Rabbit. Now, 
Four years ago, Chris lost his job, unfortunately, as an art buyer at Macy's. And like so many people, he struggled to find a new one during the session. And then he happened to stumble across a post about TaskRabbit. Now, the way TaskRabbit works is people outsource the tasks that they want doing, name the price they're willing to pay, and then vetted rabbits bid to run the errand. Now, the tasks being posted are things that you might expect, like help with household chores or doing supermarket runs. But I love that the number one task posted over 100 times a day is something that many of us have felt the pain of doing. Yes, assembling <laughs> IKEA furniture. <laughs> it's brilliant. Now, we may laugh, but Chris here is actually making up to $5,000 a month running errands around his life. And 70% of this new labor force were previously unemployed or underemployed. I think TaskRabbit and other examples of collaborative consumption are like lemonade stands on steroids. I really like this idea that entire economies, in some ways, are, are sort of becoming decentralized. Like, this idea that to have economic power isn't just for powerful corporations, but, but for anyone, I guess, right, if, if they're trusted. I mean, this is the fundamental point that a lot of the critics miss, is that what it does for everyone is it changes the role that you can play in society. You know, you don't have to be a passive consumer. You can be a provider. You can be an entrepreneur. You can be a lender. And that fundamentally is an empowering thing, you know, on peer-to-peer -peer lending. So the default rate on peer-to-peer -peer lending has now dropped below 0.4%. And you compare that to a traditional bank, which I think is around 3 to 4%. Credit cards around 7 to 8% how people default. And so, you know, and you look at the research as, as why is that? You know, why is this system of peer-to-peer -peer lending? And, and what people say is, I, I trust you more than a big bank but I also feel a sense of accountability to another human being, another individual that I do not feel to a corporation. It's only a matter of time before we'll be able to perform a Facebook or Google-like search and see a complete picture of someone's behaviors in different contexts over time. And this will live in a some kind of reputation dashboard that will paint a picture of your reputation capital. Ultimately, when we get it right, reputation capital could create a massive positive disruption in who has power, trust, and influence. A three-digit score, your traditional credit history, that only 30% of us actually know what it is, it will no longer be the determining factor in how much things cost, um, what we can access, and in many instances, limit what we can do in the world. Indeed, reputation is a currency that I believe will become more powerful than our credit history in the 21st century. You know, the thing about collaborative consumption and trust economy that kind of bothers me. I mean, I love it and I want to be part of it, but I mm -hmm. kind of feel like it shuts people out as well if they're not willing to sort of give everything up off the bat. Like Facebook yeah. to me is really scary. You know, mm -hmm. they have so much information and every click is a data point and every friend is a data point. And why should I trust that they're going to keep that information safe? Yeah. I mean, this is something I raised in, in the TED Talk. It's who owns this data. Right. Airbnb has data on how clean I am. 
whether I drop yeah. the towels on the floor. Wow. So <laughs> the owner is actually can actually write about that and then they can compile that information and store it somewhere? They do. Airbnb has all that data. Um, wow. I mean, I'm not just saying this. Airbnb, I actually, I know the founders. I know that company really well and I trust them. But there's other companies where I think about, God, they could sell that data to XYZ and, and it would really have implications that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. But um, but you argue in your TED Talk that that despite all these privacy concerns, you still think that there's value in this idea of, of reputation and trust as currency? Yeah. And, and, you know, if it makes people stop and think, should I be trusted and do I treat people well and do I behave well? It's difficult to argue that is a bad thing. I think, you know, a lot of trust has been destroyed in the world because we can hide behind things. And I think that's what's both empowering but incredibly frightening to people is is the visibility around our behaviours and having to accept the consequences mm-hmm. around that. Maybe we'll just all behave better. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we'll behave better. Maybe we'll treat people better. Rachel Botsman, she's written a book about this. It's called What's Mine is Yours. You can see her entire talk at ted.npr.org. Our show today, Trust and Consequences. So up until now, we've been talking about how vital trust is in democracies and corporations, in any situation where people have to create something together. And then... There's the most basic and powerful kind of trust, the trust between people who love each other. It is one of the most magnificent experiences one can have. It's an experience among friends. It's an experience from a child to a parent and a parent to a child later on. This is Esther Perel. She's a psychotherapist and a writer. It allows me to know that I'm not alone. That is one of the fundamental experiences that come with trust is I am not alone. In archetypal language, you could say that once we are thrown out of Eden, we are on a quest for trust, for that solid ground, for that sense that tomorrow will arrive when today ends. Right. I mean, trust allows us to live our lives and, and just accept that things will function, right? Yes. Yes. Because trust is our ability in some way to live with what we will never know, mm. but to somehow tolerate that unknown enough that we can move and take risks and love and all of those things. Love and marriage and intimacy, that's what Esther specializes in. And lately, she's been studying one of the main things that can destroy all of that, having an affair. And it can take that powerful bond you've built up over time and just shred it in an instant, maybe forever. But when you lose trust like that, you can also learn a lot about it. Here's Esther giving her latest talk on the TED stage. Why do we cheat And why do happy people cheat? And is an affair always the end of a relationship? For the past 10 years, I have traveled the globe and worked extensively 
with hundreds of couples who have been shattered by infidelity. This extremely common act is so poorly understood. Adultery has existed since marriage was invented, and so too the taboo against it. In fact, infidelity has a tenacity that marriage can only envy. So much so that this is the only commandment that is repeated twice in the Bible. <laughs> once for doing it, and once just for thinking about it. <laughs> so how do we reconcile what is universally forbidden yet universally practiced? We are walking contradictions. So 95% of us will say that it is terribly wrong for our partner to lie about having an affair, but just about the same amount of us will say that that's exactly what we would do if we were having one. So, but Esther, I mean, it's it's wired into us. Like, if that happens, if our partners cheat, it has an incredibly powerful hold on us. It's like it captures our feelings and our senses so. So completely. Yes, it is often seen today as the ultimate betrayal, but it's a violation because we don't expect it. We marry with the promise that this would never happen. When marriage was an economic arrangement that was more of a production economy of children and paychecks, then you trusted your partner for that. And if your partner cheated, It may be really hurtful, it may be painful, but as long as they fulfill the mandate of coming home at night, as long as they fulfill the mandate of not being violent, as long as they fulfill the mandate of taking care of the children, you trusted them for what you thought was the essence of marriage. But the essence of marriage has changed. We cannot understand modern infidelity without locating it in the massive, extreme makeover that marriage has gone through. We have a romantic ideal in which we turn to one person to fulfill an endless list of needs, to be my greatest lover, my best friend, the best parent, my trusted confidant, my intellectual equal. And I am it. I'm chosen, I'm unique, I'm irreplaceable, I'm the one. And infidelity tells me I'm not. Infidelity shatters the grand ambition of love. But if throughout history, infidelity has always been painful, today it is often traumatic because it threatens our sense of self. So my patient, Fernando, he's plagued. He goes on, I thought I knew my life. I thought I knew who you were, who we were as a couple, who I was. Now I question everything. Can I ever trust you again, he asks. Can I ever trust anyone again? I mean, that speaks to, to how powerful and then how fragile trust can be. Yes. I would say infidelity has always been painful, massively painful. But by definition, we trust our partner for certain things and not for other things. I mean, 
if you ask people, they don't have necessarily a blind trust toward their partner. Some people would never trust their partner with their children. Some people never trust their partner with money. Some people never trust their partner with the car. Some people never trust their partner with a hammer. But we do expect that they would not do something that would rupture the bond between us. But what about after an affair? Like, have you, have you ever seen in the people that you work with trust totally restored after that? I will change your question a little bit. I would say, can we rebuild trust? Yes. And the trust that is rebuilt is different from the trust we had before. For many of us, it will be maybe a more mature trust, less of this primal trust that almost reached a level of naivete, um, and it's more rooted in, in reality. It's not that we continue to live with a sense of dread all the time because then you're not trusting, but it is that we once again have the ability to tolerate the unknown, to live with what we will never know. The fact is the majority of couples who have experienced affairs stay together. But some of them will merely survive, and others will actually be able to turn a crisis into an opportunity. They'll be able to turn this into a generative experience. And I'm actually thinking even more so for the deceived partner, who will often say, you think I didn't want more, but I'm not the one who did it. But now that the affair is exposed, they too get to claim more, and they no longer have to uphold the status quo that may not have been working for them that well either. I've noticed that a lot of couples in the immediate aftermath of an affair, because of this new disorder that may actually lead to a new order, will have depths of conversations with honesty and openness that they haven't had in decades. And Partners who were sexually indifferent find themselves suddenly so lustfully voracious they don't know where it's coming from. Something about the fear of loss will rekindle desire and make way for an entirely new kind of truth. So in, in the couples that lose trust because of an affair but still end up staying together, I mean, what are they doing that allows them to stay together? It takes a process. So if you explain to me why this happened, you help me understand the meaning and the motives of your affair, then it frees me a little bit of having to do the scavenging, the detective questions, I call them, the mining for the sordid details. Knowing what happened and knowing the facts isn't really what helps restore trust. Reweaving together a story together Moving the affair from what you did to me to when we went through this crisis together is the switch in narrative that you see in most of the couples who have been able to restore trust. Every affair will redefine a relationship and every couple will determine what the legacy of the affair will be. Betrayal in a relationship comes in many forms. There are many ways that we betray our partner, with contempt, with neglect, with indifference, with violence. 
sexual betrayal is only one way to hurt a partner. In other words, the victim of an affair is not always the victim of the marriage. Now, you've listened to me, and I know what you're thinking. She has a French accent. She must be pro-affair. <laughs> so you're wrong. I am not French. <laughs> and I'm not pro-affair. I look at affairs from a dual perspective. Hurt and betrayal on one side, growth and self-discovery on the other. What it did to you and what it meant for me. And so when a couple comes to me in the aftermath of an affair, I will often tell them this. Today in the West, most of us are going to have two or three relationships or marriages. And some of us are going to do it with the same person. Your first marriage is over. Would you like to create a second one together? Thank you. That's psychotherapist and author Esther Perel. Her book about relationships is called Mating in Captivity. And by the way, it's true. She's actually not French. She's Belgian. listening to our show Trust and Consequences this week. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Janae West, with help from Barton Girdwood and Daniel Shukin. In the front office, Eric Newsom and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.